Well, good morning, church family. If you take seriously what we just sang, um, asking the Lord for forgiveness for the thing that we have made it, whatever it is that we have made worship into, whatever we've made the preaching moment into, whatever it is that we have refashioned and rebranded the Sunday morning experience into, we just want to we just want to repent of that. We just want to give these moments back to God and allow him to do exactly what he intended to do through this moment in the way that he desires to be honored, to be glorified. And, and even as we sang in the song, my head fully agrees theologically, but I know my heart always has another agenda. And so I want to ask you to just kind of join me in going before the Lord and just asking that what we just sang would really become a part of our, our operating system. It'd be our download, if you will, the way we really do it, right? Um, Father, in the name of Jesus, I come before you this morning, and uh, I, uh, I just pause um, because I want to just, I want to soak uh, in the moment of what you desire to do and never let it become mundane regardless of how many opportunities you give us to teach and preach your people to your people. Lord God, may the, may the agenda always be the same. It would be nothing other than you. Lord God, we would just point people to you. Lord God, would you be front and center in today's message? Would you be the, 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 the principal point? Would you be the foundation? Would your, Lord God, would you, would you allow us to experience, Lord God, fully what the word says, that it is good for doctrine, reproof, correction, and instruction in righteousness, that we will be thoroughly furnished every good work. Would you show us, Lord God, truths concerning yourself, your son, your spirit. Show us the truth concerning our sin. Show us the truth concerning our need to be sanctified. Show us the great biblical truths uh, concerning our service and how we should, Lord God, uh, then take what you have done in our lives and pour it into the lives of others. Lord God, would you please allow us to experience that? Would you allow us to experience elsewhere where it says in your word, Lord God, that, that uh, when the Apostle Paul says he didn't come with, with, with words of according to men's wisdom, uh, but, but, but he came with just a simple presentation of the gospel. He claimed to know nothing else that, Lord God, people's faith, that your people's faith, my faith, our faith, oh God, would rest in a demonstration of the Spirit. Lord God, would you let there be a demonstration of your Spirit upon which we would hook our faith and nothing else today. Lord God, we want to live out fully what we just sang in worship. If that was worship in spirit and in truth, Lord God, that we don't want anything other than you, oh God, would you please reframe us now, redeem us now from all the other expectations, and that would indeed be our goal and focus. Glorify yourself now in your people, and it is in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen and amen. Well, all right. Well, Gospel Hope, if you, are, uh, if you have been here trekking with us since the very beginning of the book of Numbers or you're just now diving in, let me just kind of give you a little, bit of, uh, a little bit of a review. It won't take that long. Um, uh, the pastoral team, we decided that the book of Numbers would be a great place to preach from under the kind of the banner of this series, In the Wilderness, because we feel like the time that we're currently in as a country, as a nation, as a culture, as a church, uh, is very wilderness like, that there are elements of where we are and what's going on that is very bewildering, right? Uh, we don't know exactly when we're going to come out of this or what kind of the, uh, you know, where the ends are going to be. We, we, we need a new type of compass to help navigate this season called the pandemic, right? You've heard the, co the conversations. We've started out talking about we're almost to the end of it, but we don't know if we're in the middle of it or not, and the dynamics are constantly changing. So we thought that a great template for us as a church would be to look at the example of our predecessors 
predecessors in the faith to see what we could learn about God's work in the lives of people who regularly find themselves in kind of a very nomadic situation where they don't know what's going to happen next. And so with that, we open up the book of Numbers, and we start following the lives of these people, the Israelites. And I believe that um, regardless of your feelings about the Old Testament, uh, I know you might like the New Testament, but you know what the New Testament says? It says in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 that we ought to learn from the examples of those, our predecessors in the faith. And so there are both some positive and negative examples of what we see occurring in the lives of the people of the Old Testament. But whether they be positive or negative examples, they are all redemptive if we kind of bring them into our lives the right way. And so I believe that there are several things that we can learn from the Israelites. Number one, when we look at what God is going to do from chapters 1 all the way through the end of the book, you are going to see what I call the same people that came out of Egypt will not be the same folks that go into Canaan. And I believe that this is one of the great, I call it time-lapse photos of progressive sanctification. In other words, the New Testament, remember it told us to reckon the old man as dead and to now live unto Christ because that old person had been crucified. We're supposed to reckon that person. Well, if you ever heard that principle in the New Testament, Thank you, brother. Have you ever heard that principle in the New Testament? Thank you again, brother. You heard that principle. You're probably saying to yourself, well, how exactly do I reckon the old man as being dead? I believe that the book of Numbers, if you will go through it, gives you what I call, again, a time-lapse photo of what it looks like to reckon the old man as dead. Because the same person that you were when God saved you will not be the same person that enjoys the loving embrace of Jesus uh, in, when the kingdom comes. You, that person has to be killed. It has to, he has to die at the cross. And so don't, don't, don't ball your toes up in your shoes and, and cringe when you see all the judgment rolling out in the book of Numbers because that same work, that same progressive work needs to take place in our lives as well. So I want you to use the book of Numbers as an analog for your own progressive sanctification. When you see some of the naughty characters that we're going to cover today, recognize that some of those folks are probably living in me and probably living in you. And these are some attitudes and ideas that, 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 that the Lord needs to work out of all of our lives. In addition to that, you, some of the early examples that we learned were these, that in the first 10 chapters, we saw the God calling Israel to rally their lives around his presence. He was at the center. There it is in this, in this thing called the tabernacle. And so we learned that the Lord wanted us to prioritize our lives around his presence. He sets the rhythm. He sets the center. He sets the priorities. And then as we saw God move with his people, the order with which he calls their lives to advance also showed us something else, that he wants to move us from being just warriors to being warriors, that he wanted to move us to become worshipers. And then we continue to look at messages and saw how they came at the cusp of walking into the, the land of Canaan, but they pulled back. And Rashad taught us that we know now that the Lord wants us to move from faithlessness to faithfulness. And he gave us kind of three main ideas for being able to do that, to trust God's promises, to trust God's plan, and to trust God's power, right? And you got some instructions on exactly how to do that. So now we have a group of people in chapter 16 and 17 who obviously from the reading you heard just here just a moment ago, they've gotten angry with God. How did this happen? Me and my son were sitting on the edge of the bed in the hotel just last week reading about the angst and the anger that Israel had toward the Almighty God. And one of the questions that he asked me is, how is it possible that a people who have seen God do great things like part the Red Sea and all the stuff that he's done for them still open their mouths against the one true and living God? How did they do it? I'll tell you why they did it, because of disappointment. 
because of disappointment. And that's what I want to talk to you about today. I want to talk to you uh, from the heading of or the title of damage control. Because I believe that if we need to deal, we must deal effectively with disappointment or else it will damage our view of God. What's happening in the life of Israel right now is that they are deeply disappointed. They are dissatisfied with God's performance. They are dissatisfied with God's performance, and they are blaming anybody associated with him for the work that is happening in them right now. They have not experienced what they thought they were going to experience per God's promise, per God's plan, and what they thought to be the outworkings of his power. And because they are disappointed with him, it is now crowding out their faith. It is doing something to their view of God, and we want to address that because they are not the only ones in the room today that have experienced deep disappointment. And so um, with that, I'm going to take a sip of water, and then we're going to pivot. We're going to look at the text, and we're going to get after this, shall we? Amen. Amen. All right. Thank you, Ryan, once again. Hmm. I'm trying. Okay, I'm just looking at that timer. You know how y'all do me. Mm. You know y'all. <laughs> hey, we family, right? We family. So, um, mm. Amen. All right, y'all don't want the rock star. Y'all don't want Rod Stewart, you want Rod Dewberry, right? Um, is that what this water is about? All right, good stuff. It's good stuff. So if I need to deal effectively with disappointment before it damages my view of God, kind of where is this idea coming from? Well, it's coming from this place. Uh, disappointment, as far as for a working definition that we're going to use together, is this. It is the distance between reality and expectation. Disappointment is the distance between reality and expectation. Israel, who has come out of Egypt, um, they have some expectations. And the way that they thought God was going to bring them through or bring them out hasn't exactly matched up to their current reality. And so it is regularly uh, producing complaints, critiques, and cravings against God, as we've seen in previous messages. But now it's really starting to reach a fever pitch where they are just really uh, starting to move in three other dynamics that I believe are very dangerous that can happen in not just their hearts, but any person's heart that does not deal effectively with the damaging effects of disappointment. Now, the Bible tells us over in uh, Hebrews chapter 12, verses 14 and 15, strive for peace with everyone and for holiness without which uh, no one will see the Lord. So see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it may become defiled. Now, a root of bitterness isn't just the bitterness that might be wrought from a broken relationship. This idea of a root of bitterness is anything that becomes deeply rooted underneath the surface of our lives that is not effectively dealt with, and then it produces fruit that doesn't look like the root. Disappointment gives birth to many different things in our lives. And in today's text, you're going to see how Israel's disappointment, undealt with in a redemptive way, because disappointment is a life reality in a fallen and broken world. But what we're going to see in the lives of Israel are three distinct fruits of the poisonous root of disappointment. The first one is that of rebellion. We will see a distinct moment of rebellion. The second thing that we will see is that of resentment. We will see resentment. And the third thing that we will see is that of regret. These are not the only fruit that can come into the life or the only poison fruit that can creep up in the life of a people who are not dealing redemptively with their disappointment, but they are, these are at least three principal expressions of disappointment with God that Israel seems to demonstrate uh, in this particular text here in chapters 16 and 17. When we talk about the work of disappointment or, or, or the reality of disappointment, again, the difference or the distance between 
my reality and my expectation, whether it be of my wife, my children, my boss, my job, my God. No matter where that disappointment sets in, uh, this is a, a part of just the, 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 the human expression of emotion. We, we have an emotional range that is given to us by having been made in the image of God. And as a result of that, there are just some unredemptive expectations that we have in many spaces of life. And because we are not all-knowing, neither are we all-powerful, we are regularly disappointed by some of life's outcomes. And one of the great works of God in sanctification is this. While in Christ, I get a legal change. I become his. While in covenant, Israel became his. They are officially God's people. The legal distinction of being God's people also needs to be followed by a corresponding lifestyle change. This is not just a great theological truth. It is a practical truth that all of you have experienced at some point. One particular night, you went to bed and you were 20. You woke up and you were 21. You were an adult. And in that legal change, you experienced, you were now available to or could avail yourselves to the full burden and benefit of being a legal adult. But guess what? Even though you legally became an adult, you are still by way of lifestyle becoming an adult. Some of you stood at an altar. You faced off with one another and said some of the most beautiful things you could ever say in the form of vows. And in that moment, you became someone's spouse. But yet you are still becoming a spouse. So in much the same way, many of you bent the knee, bowed the head, closed the eyes, prayed a prayer, became believers in Jesus Christ. You became followers of Jesus legally. You were his, you were bought. But yet by lifestyle, you are still becoming. There is a work that needs to be done. And I believe that as we look at this, the Lord wants to work through, help us work through in a redeeming way through some of the deep disappointments that occur in life when reality does not match exactly with our expectations. While it is that I would say that Jesus Christ does the air game, so to speak, in having purchased and bought a people, it is the Holy Spirit that comes into our life and does the ground game. Some of the really gritty work of helping us on a daily basis work through this. And so if you want to put some handles on this particular text, we see the work of a, of a very meek intercessor, one who is quietly working with uh, the people of Israel. I believe you'll see glimpses of the work of the Lord Jesus and even some more uh, clear glimpses of the work of the Holy Spirit as a great intercessor who is trying to work his people through or help his people be transformed in uh, their lives to root out rebellion in us, which is in every one of us, to root out resentment, which is in every one of us, and to root out seasons of regret, which could find itself in every one of us, especially when we do not deal redemptively with disappointment. So if you have your Bibles with you, go ahead and turn with me in them to chapter 16. We're going to look at the first three verses in our particular text. You've already heard some of this, but I want to read it again with some uh, other emphasis. It says, now Korah, the son of Izar, son of Kohath, uh, the son of Levi, son of Levi. These are the Levites. Their inheritance is not necessarily uh, a land, but it is the, 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 the work around the temple. We talked about that. Uh, Dathan and Abiram, the sons of Eliab, and on the son of Peleth, the son of Reuben, took men and those who uh, were before, and they rose up before Moses. With a number of the people of Israel, 250 chiefs of the congregation, chosen from the assembly, well-known men, and the assembly, they assembled themselves against Moses and against Aaron and said to them, you have gone too far, for all in the congregation are holy, every one of them, and the Lord is among them. 
Why then do you exalt yourself above the assembly of the Lord? When Moses heard it, he fell on his face. The Bible already told us that Moses was the meekest man ever to ever live. And here it is in the face of a union steward representing the causes of the people of Israel who are dissatisfied with the conditions of their current workplace. Have decided He falls on his face. He falls on his face. Now, what's interesting about Korah is I believe that Korah is representative of something that is at work within every one of us when the outcomes of life no longer match exactly what I wanted. Rebellion. Rebellion is common. It is a common response to not fully understanding the mind of God. Rebellion is a common response to not fully understanding the mind of God. In other words, God, what are you doing? Now, what's interesting here is Korah and and the crew of 250 and all the congregation of Israel in previous chapters and in previous books have clearly seen God set aside Moses and Aaron for this work. As a matter of fact, even after the book of Exodus, early in the book of Numbers, we see even during the numbering of Israel, God set aside certain people for certain work within within this body. And so this idea that they are complaining against Moses is in reality them complaining against God because they have clearly seen with their own eyes God set these people apart. Well, why is it that they are now saying that Moses is the one who has exalted himself above the people? Because they have become blind to the work of God and they have ignored the mind of God. The Bible tells us this in the New Testament. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 14 and following, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. And he is not able to understand them because he, they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual person judges all things, but he himself uh, is to be judged by no one. For God, who has understood, this is so key, for who has understood the mind of the Lord that they, as to instruct him, but we have the mind of Christ. So while Korah, And these folks that follow him have not fully understood exactly what God is doing with them. They are deeply disappointed. If they had crossed into Canaan already, this would not be a conversation. This is all born out of a deep disappointment with with the fact that life has not shaped up with or or, or the the, the outcomes that they feel like they signed up for. And so what what does undealt with disappointment do? It looks for someone to blame. And so, therefore, they go and they blame Moses and Aaron for exalting themselves above the rest of the people. But this also demonstrates that they have not fully understood the mind of God. But the New Testament affirms that. It says, who has known the mind of the Lord that we would instruct him? No one, comma, but we do have the mind of Christ. In other words, the Bible acknowledges that you and I may never, ever, ever be able to fully figure out all that the Lord does. We just don't have that omniscient capacity. We will never understand it. But the Lord has not just left us hanging and say, I got you on a need-to-know basis. He says, while we have not known the mind of the Lord that we might instruct him, we do have the mind of Christ. And what are the markers of the mind of Christ? If you've ever read the book of Philippians, chapter 2, and all of that chapter, but verses 5 through 10, it tells us that the Christ mind is marked by three very distinct characteristics. Cross, excuse me, a countercultural brand of obedience, a death, even uh, uh, obedience, uh, not just any old obedience, but obedience even to the cross. A humility like no other. Jesus, who being in the form of God, but he did, it was not robbery for him to be equal with God, but he also didn't think that that was something for him to lead with in all of his conversations publicly. And then we also see the Christ mind is marked by a great commitment to service, putting the needs of others above his own. 
Now, now kind of think about the, the, those things, humility, service, and just a countercultural kind of obedience, and go backwards into, the, into the, the, the scriptures and think about that moment where Jesus is before the Father, and he says, is there any way that this cup can pass from me? Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. So even Jesus models for us the Christ mind, which is the ability to reach what I call the point of nevertheless, or what the scriptures show us when he says nevertheless. Uh, uh, this may be what I want, but I'm going to move with humility. Amen. I'm going to move with service for others because that's what that, that going to the cross was. Is how do we serve the sinner that you sent me to save? And an uncharacteristically high level of obedience that other people might think would be absolutely crazy. Kind of like Peter. There's no way you're going to be sacrificed and taken away from us. But that is the Christ mind. And it's not a mind that is far from us. As a matter of fact, it is the kind of mind that the, the Holy Spirit wants to cultivate in us. This is his work. He wants to build this in us. So while the mind of Korah says, I'm going to take over because, Lord, you don't look like you know what you're doing. The mind of Christ says, I'm just going to hand over my life because I obviously don't know what I'm doing. That's what the Christ mind says. What the Christ mind says, when I encounter conditions in life that don't shape up to what I thought they should, the Christ mind says, when it's working in me, Lord, I just kind of give it over because I'm obviously the one who doesn't know what I'm doing. I believe that you know what you're doing. But the mind of Korah, the little rebellious one in me, says, Lord, I'm not just going to hand over my life. I need to step in here and take over. Christianity isn't working. Praying isn't working. Reading isn't working. Serving isn't working. Church isn't working. I need to take over. There's something else that I need to do. I need to pull myself up by my bootstraps. I got to get this done. I've got to help myself because that's who God helps, right? Those who help themselves, which we know is not in the Bible. But the rebellious mind does not desire humility and service and countercultural obedience. It desires to do things of its own agenda and look for someone to blame when things don't quite shape up the way we want them to. And this is exactly uh, uh, what the spirit of rebellion does. And ladies and gentlemen, it lives in every single one of us. This isn't just a bad guy trapped in the pages of the Bible. But this is just a little bit of a sneak peek into the hearts of each one of us when it seems like God is taking just too long. Or he's not doing it the way we planned. Or as we expected it. Or the way we interpreted the promises of scripture. But yet, how we work through disappointment is all part of our sanctification. The Holy Spirit desires to speak into our life at areas where we are greatly disappointed and help us reach the point of nevertheless. Lord, how do I trust you? How do I move in humility? How do I move in service? And how do I move in even a, a, a crazy kind of obedience to you? How do I operate in the Christ mind? In chapter 16, verses 12 through 15, we see yet another outworking of disappointment that is undealt with in a redeeming way. In chapter 16, verses 12 through 15, we see the following words. Uh, it's not just uh, uh, Korah and his crew, but there's another group that Moses calls to him. It's the other guys, Dathan and Abiram. And it says, and Moses sent to call Dathan and Abiram, the sons of Eliab, and they said, we will not come up. Is it a small thing that you have brought us up out of the land, a land flowing with milk and honey? Pause. These guys are now referring to Egypt as the land of milk and honey. Is this not crazy? 
they have now attributed the work of God with the work of bondage. I mean, this is kind of like borderline blasphemy. You see that? So he says, you brought us out of, out of the land flowing with milk and honey to kill us in the wilderness that you must, that you, and you must also, and you also make yourself a prince over us. Moreover, you have not brought us into the land flowing with milk and honey, nor have you given us the inheritance of fields and vineyards. Will you also put out the eyes of these men? Will, uh, uh, we will not, if we will not come up? And Moses was very angry and said to the Lord, do not respect their offering. I have not taken one donkey from them, and I have not harmed one of them. So obviously we're on the cusp of the ground opening up and literally swallowing Korah and all that followed after his way. And Abiram and uh, Dathan obviously see this coming. And when Moses calls to them, they move toward him with what I would see as a second fruit of undealt with disappointment, and that is resentment. You see, resentment is a common response to feeling like the Lord or somebody has let you down. Resentment is a common response to feeling like the Lord or someone else you know has let you down. And, I, and we choose, the, kind of the voice of the heart in that moment is, I am going to hurt you by rejecting you. Lord, you didn't, do, you didn't perform the way I wanted you to, so I'm going to hurt you by no longer praying. I'm going to hurt you by no longer reading my Bible. I'm going to hurt you by no longer attending the local church. I'm going to hurt you by just kind of turning on a dime and no longer, no longer wanting to commune with your people or talk about your stuff. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to passively, aggressively demonstrate to God, you let me down. Therefore, in my little finite self, I'm going to try to let you down. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to intentionally ignore you in every category of my life that I possibly can. This is what resentment toward the Lord looks like. We may never open our mouths toward the Lord and say, I resent you. But through the posture of our heart and the way that we respond to him when he calls to us and when we, he appeals to us and when he desires to draw us closer, do we adopt the same posture of resentment? Do we resist him? The Bible tells us that, that, that in much the same way that we see Moses very meekly appealing to this man to come forward, that this is very much how the Holy Spirit appeals to us through this, this soft voice, strong and clear, but a very soft voice just to appeal to us. The Bible also tells us in the New Testament in several places, there are four principal ways in which we can sin against the Holy Spirit, one of which is the biggie, and that's blasphemy. But, another one, but the other three are these, resisting the Spirit, according to uh, Acts chapter 7, verse 51, grieving the Spirit in uh, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 30, quenching the Spirit in 1 Thessalonians 5, 19. Now, what's interesting about all of these adjectives or all of these various kinds of adverse responses to the Holy Spirit, whether it be to resist him, to quench him, or to grieve him, they are all very dynamic in this regard. If I'm resisting the Spirit, then he's trying to take me somewhere, and I'm involved in some kind of tug of war, if you will, to move away from him. If I'm grieving him, that means that the Holy Spirit is able to be a source of joy springing up in my life, but I've chosen to do things that actually, that actually annoy the Holy Spirit. If I am quenching him, then he is like a flame that, that, that gives me passion and also sheds light on some things that are happening in my life. And then I have chosen to ignore that light or to try to intentionally put that flame out. This is what happens when we move to a place of actually resenting the Lord. But how do we get there? Undealt with disappointment when the Lord, when we feel as if the Lord has let us down, when we don't feel as if he is performing according to our plan. He didn't answer the prayer the way that we painted it. He didn't answer the promises the way that we particularly believe them. And you know what happens in that moment? 
because God is faithful and for those of us that are truly in him, one of the means of sanctification is that the Holy Spirit calls us during this season of resentment to be filled with him even if we are not feeling him. Even when I'm not feeling the Spirit, I need to be filled with the Spirit. Especially when I'm not feeling the Spirit, I need to be filled with the Spirit. The commitment to being filled with the Spirit is not just to come when your favorite song has come on and your favorite pastor has preached a fiery message. Like even when, especially when, I am not feeling the Spirit, I need to be filled with the Spirit. The Bible talks about being filled with the Spirit in this way, and I don't want you to miss this. In Ephesians chapter 5, verses 18 through 20, and do not get drunk with wine. How do you get drunk with wine? Anybody, just, a, just a, not a show of hands. Drink a lot of it. In other words, to be filled, to be filled with it. So the Bible says, do not be filled with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled in some other way with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord in your heart, giving thanks always for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, let's, let's just walk this out real quick. We are called to be filled with the Spirit as opposed to being filled with, with drunkenness. Now, you might be saying, well, I got the first part of that passage because I don't drink anyway, and if I do, I don't drink that much. But I hope what you see here is that we as a people desire to be full of something. We hate the feeling of emptiness. And while drink, wine may not be your filling of choice, sometimes it might just be constantly pulling up to the table, walking up to the refrigerator, uh, a shopping spree, a show that you love, laying in the bed all day. But we do something. People who are feeling disappointed may not be clinically depressed, but we operate in practical depression. I'm empty, and I've got to find a way to dumb this feeling of letdown and disappointment. I need to numb it. I need to dumb it down. And sometimes it's a substance, but there is ways that we try to fill our mouths, our minds, or all of the moments of life with as much as we can to numb the sting and the impact of disappointment. We are always going to be filled with something. And the Bible says, well, if you're going to be filled with something, be filled with the Spirit. So the Bible doesn't just call me to be filled with the Spirit. It actually tells me how to be filled with the Spirit. Look at it again. Do not be drunk with wine or do not be filled with wine. That is debauchery. But be filled with the Spirit. Verse 19, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Step one, being filled with the Spirit it, 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 is, it is reflected in an active choice to obey God in the way that I speak about my, to my fellow man, to be filled with the Spirit. Now, I can't speak in psalms and hymns to my fellow man if I'm not filled with any psalms and hymns. If I have not read the Lord's Word, His Word, they are, they are life and they are spirit. They are spirit and they are life. So to be filled with the Spirit, I need, to, I need to fill myself with something, and I need to actively use God's Word. I need to let God's words become my words. The way that I talk about my external world matches what the Word says about it. The way I talk about my fellow man. In other words, if, if Korah and the congregation's hearts had been filled with the Word of the Lord as they saw it spelled out in Exodus and Leviticus, they would have never turned toward them and said those words about their fellow man, Moses and Aaron, because they would have been filled with the Spirit. You and I, when we experience a season of deep disappointment, fill your hearts and minds with the words of God and speak to your external situation the way the Bible speaks to it. 
be filled with the Spirit. But the Bible not only says addressing one another, addressing one another in hymns and spiritual songs and psalms, but it says also making melody in the heart to the Lord, making melody uh, to the Lord in the heart. So not only do I need to govern and make a choice to speak to my external people and those around me with words that are Spirit-filled, but I also need to speak internally to the Lord. My internal dialogue, you can tell a lot about yourself and whether or not you're actively harboring and, and, and providing safe haven to disappointment by where your heart naturally rests when no one is talking to you and you're not talking to anyone else. And the Bible says what you do is you need to be making melody in your heart to the Lord. So my external conversation is a reflective, is a choice to be filled with the Spirit. My internal dialogue, or my eternal dialogue, where I talk about the Lord, and then also my, my internal dialogue, but also my eternal dialogue, giving thanks to the Lord always for everything. Do you know how much stuff is included in everything? We don't have time to go through the list, but it, it, it really aligns with what James told us to count it all joy when you encounter diverse uh, situations that may not feel great to learn how to thank the Lord for everything. And so even when I'm not feeling the spirit, it's a prime time to be filled with the Spirit. This is a great part of how the Holy Spirit wants to recultivate and recalibrate the heart. I left my towel right there next to you, Carrie. You can throw it up here. Don't throw it, baby. Throw it. Such, such a kind spirit. Thank you so much. All right. So then, chapter 16, verse 41, and then 17, 11 through 13. In 1641, so it is that, that obviously... Korah and his crew, they are judged. Well, then when we get down here to verses 41, this is what the congregation says. But now on the next day, all the congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and said, uh, and against Aaron saying, you have killed all these people. And when the congregation had assembled against Moses and against Aaron, they turned toward the tent of meeting, and behold, the cloud that covered it, and the, and the glory of the Lord appeared. And, in this glory, and as the glory of the Lord appeared to them, then a plague ran out amongst the people. But Moses and Aaron, even with the stiff-necked people, ran out in the middle. Aaron runs out in the middle of the people to stop the plague, a, a great act of incredible intercession that is mind-boggling, uh, that, that surpasses all understanding, or that mirrors and matches exactly what the Bible says about the Holy Spirit, that he intercedes for us with groanings and utterings that are, that are just beyond human comprehension. Like it is beyond human comprehension that these people that have given Moses and Aaron so much grief that they would continue to intercede for them. Multiple times throughout this season in Israel's life, God has says he has cracked his knuckles and pulled out the brass holy knuckles from his desk drawer and told Moses, let me get them. And Moses says, nah, nah, don't do that. An incredible portrait of intercession from Moses and then here it is, in this very moment, the congregation then, after they see that God is serious, they say these words over here in chapter 17, verses 11 through 13. They say, thus did Moses, and the Lord commanded, uh, and the Lord, as the Lord commanded him, so he did. And the people, and this is after Moses, uh, uh, excuse me, Aaron's, uh, uh, Aaron's rod is budded, and God has made it clear before them who he has chosen to do his sacred work. But then in verse 12, it says, and the people of Israel said to Moses, behold, we perish and we are undone. We are all undone. Everyone who comes near, everyone who comes near to the tabernacle of the Lord, we shall die. Are, are, are we, excuse me, are we all to perish? 
One of the great fruits of disappointment that is undealt with in their lives is not only that of rebellion, not only that of resentment, but now that of deep regret. The voice of regret is exactly this. The voice of regret is, is, is a common response to knowing that you have messed up, but not knowing or believing exactly how you'll ever be able to clean it up. Has anybody ever been at a place of deep regret? The people of Israel are at a place of deep regret. They know that they have messed up, but their hearts are, deep, are, are gripped by deep regret. Regret, again, it may be common to feel that in the moment, but it's not the place where God wants us to stay. You see, this impulse of this emotion of looking back over my life and recognizing that I have messed up and not believing that I can fully clean it up, it's actually true, but it also is marked by great pride. There are some things in my past, in our lives, in your lives, that we cannot clean up. We cannot clean up. We have messed up royally, and that's why Jesus Christ is a king. Understand that there are things that we have messed up that in our own strength we will never be able to clean up. But it is our pride that informs us that perhaps we can bring something to the table to try to clean it up. And therefore, we live in a place of perpetual regret about past sins because we can't seem to piece together a plan of redemption in our own strength. But with regret, the Holy Spirit steps in who does not want us to live in a life in regret according to 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 10 and 11 is in this way. Here's what the Holy Spirit wants. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. For see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, but also what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. At every point, you have proved yourself innocent in the matter. Godly grief, godly grief doesn't lead to regret, it leads to repentance. And this is the great work that God wants to wrought in our life, is that the Spirit of the Lord is calling us to repent, not to regret. Regret is where we live when we're trying to figure out how to clean up messes in our own power. But repentance is what the Holy Spirit does when he breathes on that regret and says, there is a way to fix this, but you can't. But my son can. The son can. The Christ can. This is why godly sorrow leads to repentance. Not only does godly sorrow lead to repentance, because when we see how royally we've messed up, we recognize that we need a royal solution to the mess. And so then it draws us to the truth of 1 John chapter 1, verse 9, that if I'll come before the Lord and I'll confess, then he's the one who starts to clean up the mess. I just have to bring it to him and fully acknowledge that this is a mess that I have made, and it is beyond anything that I could ever fix. Lord, could you do something with this? And then the Bible says that by his promise, not only does he forgive, but then he cleanses us of all unrighteousness, but by the blood of his son, Jesus Christ. Godly sorrow leads to repentance. Real repentance leads to the production of spiritual fruit. Because for those that would bend the knee to Christ and say, here it is, I've royally messed up. King, can you fix this? He then comes and not only cleans it, but then gives us his spirit. And then the spirit comes and begins to cultivate fruit in our lives. Galatians chapter 5, verses 22 through 24 says, but the fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, uh, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such there is no law. And those who are who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with his passions. In the list prior to this, we were told about the, the, the works of the flesh. The, the, this list, the fruit of the Spirit is not just something to be memorized by small children on the other side of these curtains. The fruit of the Spirit are a fundamental part of our sanctification when the Lord points out the need to repent rather than moving into regret. 
You can't fix it, but what you can do are replace the works of the flesh with the fruit of the Spirit. Each one of the fruit of the Spirit correspond to all the areas of, many of the areas of brokenness in our lives. Real repentance leads to the reproduction of spiritual fruit, and the fruit of the Spirit leads to the repair of our souls and of our relationships. You tell me what broken relationship, what messed up past, what messed up people, what messed up issues in your life wouldn't respond to love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. These aren't strategies. These are things that the Lord has spoken life into that if we will do them, that the, the Spirit's power that is yet at work within us. Remember, these are fruit. They're not, these are, these are not uh, Lego blocks that we put out. These are not uh, pills that we pass out to other people. They are fruit to be firstborn in us. So in other words, as we, as we find ourselves trying to fix the brokenness in our lives uh, or fix the brokenness in other lives and other relationships that may have been ruined by resentment, regret, and rebellion, let the first work of the Spirit, let it be in us. Let that fruit be born in us. We talked a great deal this morning about disappointment, the distance between reality and expectation. I can't think of anybody. I don't, I, I don't want to misspeak here, but... When it comes to the distance between reality and expectation, I can't think of a greater gap between what God expects of his people and our current reality. So how does God deal with the distance between expectation and reality? You know what he does? He plugs in the work of Christ. Our reality is that we are broken and fallen people who never live up to his expectation. But God says, well, how do I fix that? I don't want to be disappointed in my people. How do I, how, what do I do with this enormous gap? So one of the great first works of the gospel is imputation. Can you say imputation? Not amputation, imputation. <laughs> imputation is where, where we are imputed, like status is conferred to us that don't belong to us. You understand? The righteousness of Christ is given to us. We are granted righteousness. That's one of the works of the gospel. God is not asking us to clean ourselves up and to recover from our rebellion. He's not asking us to get over it. He is saying, I want you to trust me to replace that rebellious heart. You cannot be righteous on your own. And so not only does God address the gap between our reality and his expectation for our lives with the imputation, the unique work of Christ becoming our righteousness, but then also he doesn't stop there. He gives us transformation, real transformation. The Holy Spirit's work is real. It is real transformation, constantly working to change us and to sometimes stop us and to hold us back and to, to, to put the reins on a rebellious heart, to, to give us a supernatural supply of joy and peace that we could not cultivate on our own. Have you ever seen a person operating under the experience of peace that surpasses all understanding? I mean, it is a mind-boggling thing to behold. You'd be like, how is this person holding it together? It is the supernatural work of the Spirit. And this is a part of the great redeeming work of the gospel, not only imputation and transformation, but also cultivation. The Holy Spirit works in the life of the believer to generate redeeming faith. Faith that can trust God even when our external circumstances radically fail to live up to our expectations. The Holy Spirit transforms our expectations so that our faith is constantly anchored in God and God alone. And so that the thing that we sang earlier, Lord, all we want is you. The Lord is constantly reworking the iOS or the Rod OS, right? 
to say, do you, you said that, do you really want that? Let me show you what you gotta work out to really only want God, to really only want Jesus, to want him as the principal thing. This is the work of the Spirit. There's no genuflection or any other type of thing that you can do to yourself to produce a heart that desires God. It is the work of the Spirit that cultivates that in us. And this is the work of the gospel. So if the great distance between our reality, or if the great distance between our reality and God's expectation, the Lord has chosen to plug in the gospel in that space, why not us? I mean, if it works for him, if he thought that was the solution, why not we? So when I find myself in life grappling with disappointment, Holy Spirit, will you come in and retool this rebellious heart? I don't need to lower my expectations. They just need to be transformed. Lord, will you come in and, and, and show me this, this heart that is bent on regret because I have done that thing for the umpteenth time and I don't believe that God ever wants to hear from me or do any type of business with me. Lord, Holy Spirit, will you breathe on this false emotion of regret that the adversary is using to drive a wedge between our fellowship and let me take the full strength of my regret and transform that. Will you transform that to a, a spirit of repentance? Will you cultivate in me the fruit of the Spirit? Open my eyes so I can see how the, the simple fruit of the Spirit is the stuff that will help me offset the work of the flesh. Help me, Jesus. This should be our prayer that the full outworking of the gospel, the, the full uh, uh, work of, of, of God, the Holy Spirit, in our hearts would help us to not shorten the distance between reality and expectation, but to effectively deal with the distance in Christ. Let's pray together. Father God, I'm not exactly sure who all is in the room and where they stand in terms of their relationship with you, but I know that disappointment is a regular part, a routine part of our life and existence. I know, O oh Holy God and Father, that disappointment is often the marker of many who have chosen to give you the stiff arm, to stand against you in rebellion and to say they want nothing to do with you because they had a crisis moment in life where you didn't follow through on what they asked you to do. Disappointment, Lord God, is the hallmark of the human life in so many spaces. And Lord God, in order to offset disappointment, so oftentimes we try to take control of our own destiny. It sounds so fancy, it sounds so real, it sounds so noble, but the reality is we cannot change our destiny. Our destiny has to be transformed because the ultimate trajectory of our life is one of sin and separation from you unless you transform us. Lord God, I pray for the disappointed heart today. I pray that the disappointed heart, Lord God, would bring itself over to you. And rather than trying to take over control, it would hand over that heart and allow you to transform it. I pray, oh God, for the person that is resenting you because they feel like they can never live up to your high standard, that they would recognize that no one can live up to your high standard and only a person who ever has is Christ. And therefore, you've asked us to place faith in your work, faith in the work you did through your son. And therefore, we would be able to live up to that standard in him and in him alone. Lord God, for those of us that, that are in you, we know you. We know you, but our lives are still marked by the mess of our past. Our lives are still marked by deep regret because we're trying so hard to fix things that are beyond the scope of our control. Would you, Lord God, allow us to enjoy the simplicity of the work of your spirit and not whisk away the fruit of the Spirit because we believe that those are just too simplistic to be the real solution in such a sophisticated and a fancy society as ours. Lord God, would you help us to enjoy the simplicity 
of living out the fruit of the Spirit and being filled with your Spirit and finding our joy in you. Lord God, would you help us? We need you in this way. We desperately need you. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Would you join me in just worshiping the Lord for his completed work on the cross and how it is that even if you're one of the most disappointing seasons in your life, would you stand on your feet, open your mouth, and sing these words? Would you do exactly what the scriptures say? Be filled with the Spirit. It's not an experience that you're waiting on. It's a choice that you make to say about your situation and to say about your Savior what he has said about himself. Let's worship him.